That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. There's an absolutely brilliant new book out told largely through the stories of a small group of families. But just it's an absolutely brilliant book. It's called How the Other Half Eats, the untold story of food and inequality in America. And I'm really happy that Dr. Priya Fielding Singh, who is an assistant professor at the University of Utah in the Department of Family and Consumer Studies, with a PhD in sociology from Stanford, is on the line with us. She's the author of the book and is on the line with us. PriyaFS.com is her website, P-R-I-Y-A-F-S.com. And uh, her Twitter handle, Priya Singh, P-R-I-Y-A-F-S-I-N-G-H. Dr. Fielding Singh, welcome to the program. Thanks so much for joining us. And uh, you know, as, as our conversations with great minds today, I, I, I found your book absolutely compelling. It's, it's, it's written like brilliant fiction, and yet it's entirely nonfiction. So thank you so much for thank joining us. Thank you so much. Oh, uh, thank yeah. you so much for having me. It's such a treat to be here. Yeah, it's a, this is a masterpiece. Well, first of all, you want to just share with people the basic conceit of the book. You know, the, these, uh, I believe it was five families that, that you actually stayed with, uh, Naya, Dana, Renata, Julie, and I'm missing somebody's name, I think. No, that's it. You got them. Oh, it's it was four. four. Okay. You got them all. Uh, the four families. And, and, and how this came about. Tell us about the book. Yeah, so my motivation for doing research for this book, for writing this book, really came from two places. So the first is that we know that in American society, we have these really widespread nutritional inequalities that cut across race and class and that really privilege higher income white Americans. At the same time that we know that we have these really important nutritional inequalities that drive broader health disparities, our explanations for what is causing those inequalities have been pretty lackluster in how much leverage they've given us in understanding what the root causes are. So an explanation that we've really hung our hats on is that there are differences in geographic food access to healthy food. People will recognize this as the food desert argument. And the food desert argument is kind of the prevailing explanation that circulates in public discourse about why we have diet disparities. But that argument actually doesn't have very much explanatory power. It's estimated that just about 10% of the socioeconomic nutritional gap can be traced to differences in food access. And so my book is kind of all about that other 90%. So if it's not food access, 
what is going on. And the way that I chose to, to investigate this question was by spending time with families, by talking to families, by um, interviewing families, embedding myself, myself in their lives, and trying to understand the really different contexts within which families are making dietary choices and how those contexts shape the decisions and the really difficult trade-offs that they have to make. You note in the book, and, and your, the families that you followed, that you stayed with, ranged from people literally on food stamps to people who were in the upper end of the, of the upper middle class. You note lower income, fam- I'm reading from page 50 of your book, lower income families spend less on food than higher income families do. $3,776 a year compared to $12,300 a year for the wealthiest households. Poorer families also devote a greater proportion of their household income to food. 33% of their earnings go to food compared to wealthier households, 9%. And yet, yeah. does that, I mean, the sense that I got from, from your book was that every one of the mothers in this book was absolutely doing her best. That, that if, yeah. if anything is under assault right now in America, Yes, we've got problems with our food supply, but it's motherhood that, you know, all the judgment being laid on, on these women and, and, and uh, you know, whether they could spend the money or not. I mean, what are the, we've got these real issues of things like obesity and particularly childhood obesity, you know, that seems to be associated with poverty or with low access to food on the one yeah. hand. And then, and then the, the fact that it's very expensive if you're going to try to feed your kids just you know, organic food, particularly in in America, where we have poisons in our food that are just illegal in Europe. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of families that can't even afford that. I mean, can you speak to? I, I realize I just threw a lot of stuff at you, but if you want to speak to that. Yeah. Well, so when I started this project, I knew that it was a study of nutritional inequality, about food access, about food affordability, but I didn't know at the time that it was also a story about American motherhood and the incredible pressures that are put on mothers in this country to feed their children well, and the fact that children's intake, children's bodies are really um, feedback about how good of moms uh, women in this country are. And the more time that I spent with families, I saw that you know every mom that I spoke to cared about her kid's diet. And, you know, I think something that might surprise people is that pretty much every mom I spoke to had a broad sense of what was healthy and unhealthy. And there was a lot of consensus across the income spectrum from mothers who were living in their cars to mothers who were living in, you know, multi-million dollar mansions. Um, Every mom understood that soda, Cheetos, Oreos were not the most nutritious foods for their kids. They understood that fruits and vegetables were the healthiest, um, most nutritious choices. But the dramatically different hands that these moms had been dealt really shaped whether or not they were able to act on that knowledge. And in the book, I argue that every mom is actually using food and feeding their kids in a way to prove that to themselves and to society that they're a good mom but the really different circumstances, financial circumstances in particular, that they're trying to do that shapes exactly how they use food and what food means to them symbolically, emotionally. And that has really important implications for these diet disparities that we see across society. 
Well, and you you open the book with the story of giving birth yourself and the and yeah. the nurse in the hospital uh, taking your child and saying, "Well, let's find out how good a parent you are. We're going to weigh your child," or words to that effect. Yeah. Um, can you speak to that? Yeah. So, you know, I did the research for this book uh, before I became a mother myself, and I think it speaks to just how. Um, clear it was to me as someone who wasn't a mother when I spoke to mothers how important feeding their kids was like it it was so blatantly obvious that this was um a really an issue that they struggled with it was something that was really core to how they thought about themselves it was something that they felt judged for and on the hook for and guilty about and I started writing the book with that knowledge and I knew that's what I wanted to talk about. And then in the process of writing the book, I became a mother myself. And I, you know, what happened was that knowledge that I had, I actually felt it on a really visceral level when I took my daughter in to, to the pediatrician. And I learned that, um, you know, my daughter's body was really feedback about my parenting and about how good of a mom I was. And and in the book, I try to, you know, the book is not about me, but I try to leverage the fact that I can understand what that feels like to be judged so harshly for my for one's child's uh, diet and body to infuse that kind of understanding and empathy throughout the book for the mothers that I spent time with. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it's really a brilliant analysis. We're talking with Dr. Priya Fielding Singh, uh, who is the author of this brilliant new book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. We'll continue the conversation in just a moment. Um, uh, the, you can tweet Priya, Dr. Singh, uh, Fielding Singh at Priya F. Singh, P-R-I-Y-A-F-S-I-N-G-H. Uh, we'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And the book, of course, How the Other Half Eats, available from, you know, your favorite bookseller uh, anywhere across the country. It's published by Little Brown. So, Dr. Fielding Singh, one of the families that you were following, was it Naya? As I recall, who was on, yeah, Naya, who was on food stamps or SNAP yeah. benefits. Well, you identify her as a food secure individual, and you say food insecure individuals are more likely to consume salty snacks, sweet sugar beverages, sugar sweetened beverages, and red or processed meat, more energy dense and satiating foods. I found that fascinating. It's, it's like we, we've all got this evolutionary thing buried deep inside us of, Oh, there's honey. That's a, or, or oh, there's meat. There's a lot of nutritional concentrated value there. Get that while you can. And it seems to be driving some problems here. How did the different moms that you were eval evaluating is probably the wrong word, but writing about, hanging out with, how did they address this issue of the impact of the basically crappy food on their kids when they occasionally let them have them? Yeah, so um, you're right. So Naya was uh, food insecure, and you know, she was the mother who I spent time with who was really living the most hand to mouth. And just something that you, you point out, I just want to reiterate, you know, for Naya and for 
most families that are on SNAP, about 80% of SNAP benefits run out within the first two weeks of the month. And so families like Naya were really left the second half of the month trying to scrape by, trying to um, basically maximize caloric intake for themselves and their children to make sure that their kids didn't go hungry. Um, But something that I noticed across the income spectrum was that kids in all families were asking their parents for what we would consider junk food, like Cheetos, Doritos, Chips Ahoy, ice cream. This is the stuff that was really heavily marketed to children. It was the stuff that they enjoyed. It had been engineered to taste delicious for them. Um, But I found that moms approached those requests from kids for junk food really differently. So, So for Naya and moms like Naya who were raising their kids in context of poverty, of often extreme scarcity, being able to make ends meet was one of, was really highly dependent on saying no to most of kids' requests, like kids' requests for new jeans or a family vacation or to the water park. And when I spent time with Naya, I saw her say no to her kids again and again and again. And I realized in this world of no that food was really one of the few things that Naya could say yes to on a daily basis. It was one of the few things that she could give her kids that brought a smile to their faces that was financially feasible for her and that made her feel like she was a good, caring mom who could provide for her children. Am I remembering right that Naya was the one you went to the Starbucks with? That's absolutely right. So, you know, one of the first days that I was hanging out with Naya, this was this was the day after Naya's cell phone had been shut off because she hadn't been able to pay the bill for it. And she and I had driven around trying to pawn off some jewelry for a few bucks. And we drove by a Starbucks and um, Naya spent $11 on frappuccinos for her and her kids. And this might seem like a really crazy financial choice, but in the context Naya was raising her children and this was actually a really rational choice to be able to give them something. I think that's brilliant. I want to amplify that point on the other side of this break. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two ends, or enter the code Hartman, the two ends, before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity, and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman, the two N's, or enter the code Hartman, the two N's, before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman 
or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. And welcome back. We are talking with, uh, with Dr. Priya Fielding Singh, the author of this brilliant new book, How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. And, and Dr. Singh, uh, just a moment ago, we were talking about one of the mothers that you were following for writing this book, who was on SNAP benefits, on food sta- what we used to call food stamps. And you, know, you, you mentioned how typically about half, uh, halfway through the month, they've completely exhausted their food stamp benefits. So, yeah. so it's, a, it's a tough one. And how these low-income parents are constantly having to say no to their kids, to, to summer vacations and trips and, and new blue jeans and all kinds of things like that, which brings us to the story of you and Naya going to a Starbucks when uh, I think this was early on when you in your relationship with her. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So we went to a Starbucks during a month where Naya was not sure if she was actually going to be able to make the rent on her place. And she bought her and her daughter $11 worth of Frappuccinos. And, you know, my first reaction when I saw the bill ring up on the register was, wow, that's that's a lot of money for someone like Naya. Um, But what I came to realize the more time that I spent with Naya and other moms in her situation was that spending that money in that moment to make her child happy was actually one of the most rational things that she could do. Because when you're living in that degree of financial instability, Moms like Naya don't know if money today will mean money tomorrow. Like there was always some debt collector coming by to to take Naya's money. Um, There was always a friend who needed help with bail or a utility that needed to be paid. And so what I saw was that when moms like Naya had money, they spent it on their children because the alternative could be that they wouldn't have anything to give their kids for weeks. And that as a mother was completely unacceptable. And so you know, understanding that context helps shed light on these choices that might not seem from a nutritional standpoint to be the best. But if you think about the importance of emotionally nourishing a child, they actually make perfect sense. Well, and in a way, it's an indictment of our society that we put low-income mothers in this horrible situation where they the only way that they can, you know, help their kids or make their, you know, give them a, a, a positive memory of their childhood is, is yeah. by, you know, giving them some, some junk food or, a, you know, something from Starbucks. Um, it's, it's really surprising. What, we yeah. have just a couple minutes left. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what your thoughts are on policy. I, the, the book is, by the way, uh, for me, it was surprisingly non-political. What did you learn that you would like to see put into place in the United States as changes in in government policy relative to food yeah yeah well first of all i think it's important to note this is a really big and complex problem that we have without easy solutions but i often think about kind of two angles that we can work in tandem to see change on this so the first is you know as you pointed out 
it is just a complete moral and political failing that we have mothers in this country who are raising their children in economic circumstances so dire that a bag of Cheetos is one of the few things that they have to offer their children. Like we need to decide what a minimum standard of living is that every family should be entitled to so that mothers and caregivers have more to give their children than just junk food. Um, So I think about safety net expansions and benefits, the bolstering of social family strong policies. But I also think that a lot of that work to elevate families out of poverty needs to be paired with a reformation of the food system. And in particular, the aggressive marketing of junk foods to both parents and children, and in particular to low-income Black and Latinx kids who are really aggressively um, and in a predatory way targeted by the food industry to cultivate in them desires for these unhealthy foods. So we need to both be thinking about what we're going to do as far as exposure to junk food and then also ensure that parents have the means to be able to give their kids enough so that food takes on a different meaning. I thought it was uh, remarkable that you kind of blew up not only the food desert myth uh, or uh, uh, maybe a smaller problem than the larger one, but also the fact that uh, all of these mothers knew uh, enough about nutrition to make good choices. It's just that there were other things that were important in life. Yeah, it's not a question of, it's really not a question of knowing. It's a question of having the means to do what one knows. Right. And and and, and parenting children is just a, a tough thing in general. And, and in these times, um, it, we have about 20 seconds left. How has COVID made this better or worse? Yeah, I think it's really exacerbating these, it's exacerbated these really long standing and deeply rooted inequalities in hunger and nutrition. A really simple illustration of this is that while we've seen hunger in white households go down, it's actually gone up in black and Latinx and low income households. So it's only getting worse. Yeah. Dr. Priya Fielding Singh is the author. The book is How the Other Half Eats, The Untold Story of Food and Inequality in America. Dr. Priya Fielding Singh, thank you so much for being our great mind today. It's great talking with you. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. It's an honor. We'll be right back with more of the news of the day and your calls after this. Stick around. Speaking of food, I have an update for you on Joe Madison's fast for for voting rights. And we'll pick up your phone calls right after this break. Our book today is The 31-Day Food Revolution, Heal Your Body, Feel Great, and Transform Your World by Ocean Robbins, with a foreword by Joel Furman, MD. This is from the introduction. Let me call it like it is. We live in a toxic food culture. It's led us to epidemic rates of obesity, heart disease, cancer, type 2 diabetes, and Alzheimer's. Things have gotten so bad that most people think it's normal to have at least a few extra pounds around the middle, to depend on an ever-growing supply of prescription medications, and to lose a little more memory and mobility with every passing year. This may be typical, but it sure as heck doesn't have to be normal. Eating food is mandatory, but suffering from brain fog, living with ever-declining health, and feeling like crap are not. The fact is that right now, hundreds of millions of people are hurting from diseases that never, ever needed to happen in the first place. 
Dangerous changes have been made to our food supply in just the last 25 years that impact how your food is grown and processed and how safe it is to eat. The status quo is driving small farmers out of business, forcing animals to live in deplorable conditions, and producing food that's making us sick. The medical industry and the processed food industry are earning trillions of dollars in a system that's devastating lives and threatening the very future of life on our planet. It's my mission to help put an end to this madness by sharing the truth about food and helping eaters put it into action. That's, where I found, that's why I founded the 500,000 plus member Food Revolution Network. And it's why I wrote the book you now hold in your hands. In some ways, I might seem like a pretty unlikely food revolutionary. After all, in 1953, my grandfather, Irving Robbins, joined with his brother-in-law, Bert Baskin, to found the 31 Flavors Ice Cream Company, Baskin Robbins. In case anyone on the planet missed the memo, we're now pretty clear that ice cream is not a health food. But back in the 1950s, as my grandpa was pumping out delicious flavors by the dozen, not much was known about the connection between food and health. Up until then, most people seemed content with three flavors, vanilla, chocolate, and strawberry. My grandfather was a consummate entrepreneur, and he set his heart on offering consumers many more options, 31 to be exact, one for each day of the month. My dad, John, grew up with an ice cream cone-shaped swimming pool. Sometimes he even ate ice cream for breakfast. He was groomed from early, early childhood to one day run the family company. My dad's youthful innovations included Jamocha Almond Fudge, one of our company's most iconic flavors to this day, and the rollout to all the stores of the famous Pink Spoons that enabled customers to enjoy free samples. But in 1967, my grandpa's brother-in-law and business partner, Bert Baskin, became very ill. His doctors informed him he was dying of heart disease. I never knew my great uncle Bert because he passed on a short time later, six years before I was born. But I do know that he was one of the greatest entrepreneurs in American history. He had tremendous wealth, a business he enjoyed, and a family he loved. And he ate a lot of ice cream. And in the end, he lost his life and his health at the age of 54. Grandpa Irv was faced with a choice. He could sell the company for a large sum of money, or he could keep the company in the business and take on my dad, then about to turn 20, as a business partner. Grandpa Irv chose to invite his son aboard. But my dad declined his father's invitation, walking away from Baskin-Robbins and from any access to or dependence on the family wealth. For him, it was a choice for integrity, and it's a choice I've always respected. My dad had seen ice cream bring smiles to a lot of people, but he also knew that unhealthy foods could fuel devastating consequences, and he didn't want to spend his life selling a product that might contribute to more people suffering and dying before their time. So he left a product, a path that was practically paved with gold and ice cream to follow his own rocky road. My dad had suffered from polio as a child and grew up frequently fatigued and ill. In the 1960s, he fell in love with my mom in Berkeley, and the two of them set out on a healthy living path. They stopped eating processed foods, they gave up ice cream, and they based their diets on vegetables and whole natural foods. As my dad's health and energy returned, he and my mom moved to a remote little island off the coast of British Columbia, Canada, where they built a one-room log cabin, grew most of their own food, practiced yoga and meditation for several hours a day, and named their kid Ocean. They say that, that they almost named me Kale. I'm glad they took the more conservative route on this one. In any case, we did eat a lot of kale, along with cabbage, carrots, onions, broccoli, turnips, Swiss chard, and many other vegetables that my parents grew, plus brown rice, sprouts, buckwheat, and beans. For a treat, once in a blue moon, we'd have a few drops of organic blackstrap molasses. I think we went through about a bottle a year. Though my childhood diet was Spartan and my family lived on very little money, I grew up feeling rich in health. 
I became an accomplished distance runner, completing my first marathon at the age of 10. My dad went on to study the impact of food choices and to share what he was learning. His landmark bestsellers, including Diet for a New America, inspired millions of people and helped to galvanize the modern health food movement. The media was tickled by the notion of a would-be ice cream heir becoming a healthy eating spokesperson and called him the rebel without a cone and the prophet of nonprofit. Tens of thousands of people wrote my dad letters, often by hand, sharing how his work had changed, sometimes even saved their lives. One of the lives his work impacted, as fate would have it, was that of my own grandpa, Irv. Now, my grandpa had been pretty mad when my dad walked away from the ice cream company. He and my dad went years without speaking. But then something remarkable happened. In 1989, Grandpa Irv, then in his early 70s, was suffering from diabetes, heart disease, and weight problems. He'd always eaten the modern diet with a double scoop of ice cream on top. His cardiologist told him he didn't have long to live unless he changed his diet. And then the good doctor handed him a copy of my dad's book, the book 31 Day Food Revolution by Ocean Robbins. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Joe Madison, our friend and colleague, is still on his hunger strike demanding voting rights legislation be passed. And, uh, and this is pretty straightforward stuff, right? The Senate meets, they hold a vote on whether to amend the Senate rules so that the filibuster can be, have an exception uh, to go around the filibuster to, for voting rights legislation, for you know, important stuff that has to do with democracy, frankly. And then they pass, at the very least, you know, the John, John Lewis Voting Advancement uh, Act and the uh, Freedom to Vote Act, uh, Joe Manchin's legislation. So anyhow, uh, our, our buddy Joe Madison, the talk show host here on SiriusXM, um, says, as the country celebrates how much we as citizens have to appreciate, he's talking about, you know, the, the Thanksgiving recess begins, I believe, on Monday. He says, as the country celebrates how much we as citizens have to appreciate, I hope that each senator will reflect on how much we have to lose if our voting rights aren't protected. Therefore, I encourage the Senate, upon their return to Washington, to immediately convene and pass a bill that will protect our voting rights. Thanksgiving, and this is just brilliant, Thanksgiving, Joe writes, after all, is a word of action. Yeah, Thanksgiving. Brilliant. Anyhow, picking up your phone call, Stephen in Kula, Hawaii. Hey, Stephen, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind today? Sure, Tom, thank you. Just apropos to your last guest, there's actually a movie that just came out about the same subject. It's called They're Trying to Kill Us. And I think it's only available right now on their website, they're trying to kill us.com, I believe. Mm -hmm. And it covers a whole gamut of, of issues related to this, this one topic. One thing that I, you know, just remembered from it was that in terms of um, food deserts, even for people who want to get out and get some better food for their family, but only have a, can travel by bus, a lot of the buses won't let them carry groceries on the bus. So even if they can get out, they're not even able to, to get the good food. Yeah. She notes in her book that 90% of American families have a car or access to a car. And she acknowledges, you know, the food deserts. She just says that the argument that has been made up to this point is that that is at the center of why there are there is this crisis, for example, of obesity in poor in the poorest communities in America. 
uh, you know, regardless of race. I mean, as you look across America, the, the poor red Republican right to work for less states tend to have higher levels of obesity and the diseases associated with it, like heart disease and, and type 2 diabetes, than do the blue states that have higher income levels. And her point was that in, in many cases for these low-income families, A, sometimes that's the least expensive food that's available with the highest number of calories and, and nutritional content. But B, it's also, you know, as a parent, as a mother, it's one of the few ways that they can say to their kids, well, here's a treat. You know, an upper middle class family can take their kids out to a restaurant, they can take them shopping, they can take them on vacation. Low income people can't do that. And so it's a real struggle. And I think that, you know, your point is well taken, Steve, Stephen. And I think that we need to take it even beyond that and recognize that we should not have food insecurity in the United States. We should not have people who can't get enough to eat. I can't afford to eat. I mean, that's that, it's an obscenity in any society. It is. It's, it's totally crazy. I totally agree with you. Yeah. One other thing I, I saw in the film that says that uh, African-Americans are two times more likely to die of di- diabetes than white Americans. That's just one right. little thing. Yeah. You know, and that's the consequence of, and she points this out in the book, by the way. She, In fact, uh, I think I might have highlighted the part where she got into it. That the, yeah, here it is. Inequality today, she writes, is not only growing within generations, it also remains shockingly durable across them. More than 90% of Americans born in 1940 were earning more at the age of 30 than their parents had earned at the same age. But today, the American dream has become a mirage. Only half of kids born in 1980 earned more at the age of 30 than their parents. That was not the. Uh, that was not the racial one. Oh, here we are. In 1968, shortly after the passage of the Civil Rights Act, the median black family income was 57% of that of whites. In 2016, which is when she was writing this book, it was 56%. So it actually, you know, it, it actually got worse. And then she goes on to say, today the average black family with children holds just one cent, one penny of wealth for every dollar that the average white family with children holds. It's pretty breathtaking stuff. Stephen, I got to move on and thank you for the call. And we can talk about, you know, anything you want. It doesn't have to be food. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. 
conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Johan in Los Angeles, though, you want to talk about farmer's markets? Yeah, um, it's no secret, like, all those markets are kind of money-driven, mm-hmm. and, like, they always, like, edge of the city and the suburbs, not but everywhere. Right, because but the suburbs are where the money is. Yep, money is all about money. Yeah. So, you know, when we lived in Washington, when Luis and I lived in Washington, D.C., I don't know how unique it is as a town, but there are areas where you go from, you know, profound poverty to you know, yuppie, yuppie wealth, you know, <laughs> by just crossing the street, you know, or going a half a block. And it seemed like the wealthy areas, there, there were no grocery stores, there were, you know, pretty much anywhere. I mean, they were really hard to find. The thing that distinguished the wealthy areas was they had a lot of fancy restaurants, real high-end yeah, mm-hmm. restaurants. And the thing that distinguished the low-income areas is they were just packed chock-a-block with Del Taco and, and Taco Bell and McDonald's and Burger King and things like that. It's, um, and but there were there there were regularly on the weekends anyway during the summer, uh, the spring, summer, and fall. There were these farmer farmers markets that were popping up all over D.C. Were you seeing? Are you seeing that, Johan, in L.A.? Everywhere, every city. Yeah, it's no secret. It's a good and then, thing. Uh, my story is the personal mine. I tried to buy grass that chicken for her, mm-hmm. and she refused because she feels sorry for it, and she uh. doesn't do with the value. Well, that's it's one time I tried to, you know, yeah. give it one one time. But you tried she, to buy something yeah. for a vegetarian. Is that what you're saying? No, 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 no. She oh. she has a financial. Uh, oh, you were you were you were offering a li- a live chicken. The, the grass fed chicken. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Tried to just one one time, and you know. Yeah. yeah. Tried to give her something, but she refused. Couldn't couldn't. I don't understand where she's coming from. Yeah. Yeah. I got it. Okay, uh, Johan, thank you for the call. Kino in Lakeland, Florida. Hey, Kino, you wanted to get back to how the GOP is now calling for bloodshed. Uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene saying that because Joe Biden didn't win the election, we have to pay with blood. Yes. Uh, you know, I was a 50-year member and, and got out of the uh, uh, party, and, and other Republicans, it needs to be pointed out by the liberals that uh, the the party called for uh, uh, the killing of Mike Pence, and that was upheld when the Republicans resisted doing research and having Congress investigate that. Yeah. And now uh, Gosar uh, called for the killing of a uh, uh, congressman, and so here's a pattern, and part of intelligence is seeing patterns. And here there's a pattern of calling for killing of people, and, and the liberals need to be pointing this out. And I, as a former Republican, call out for other Republicans to be aware that there's a descent into criminality. There, there, there certainly is, Kino. Um, how, how have your Republican friends, I mean, you know, throughout our lives, we tend to, to build networks of, of friendship that are people with whom we have common worldviews. I'm assuming that you have Republican friends who have not left the party. What are those conversations like, if you don't mind my asking? Well, okay, I have family members who who are still in the Republican Party, and it's very awkward. And and, and when I try to point out these things, number one, they resist being pointed.
point it out. But when I do, they're 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 silent. They they're not having. But I'm trying to become more adamant in in saying that the the party is descending into criminal. It was sinners lying about elections is sinning, and now they're getting worse. They're they're progressing into uh, advocating killing of people and and, and 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 holding it up. And that pattern needs to be viewed. And liberals need to point that out for the twenty. 22 elections. Yeah, I don't. I don't know how it is even possible that uh, a 17-year-old kid killing a couple of people with an AR-15, or um, you know, three white guys down in Georgia chasing, hunting down a black jogger and murdering him, could become political. But they have. I mean, both of these cases, they've become yeah. political causes where the Republicans are basically on the side of the killers, and the de Democrats are basically on the side of the victims. And it's like. How did we get here? I, this is just bizarre. Keno, thank you for the call. It's, it's always nice talking to you. Laurie in du, Dubois, Pennsylvania. Hey, Laurie, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I had a question concerning a flat tax. Rather than doing all these navigations around taxing, why not just do a flat tax? Why not just make it simple? A flat tax is what the billionaires want, and they want it a lot, and they've been promoting it for a lot of years, because if you're a billionaire or if you're a wealthy person who might be paying 30, 40, 50 percent income tax, and you can drop that down to 17 percent because everybody's paying 17 percent, hey, life gets good. And no, no, on no, the other no. hand, I, if, you're, if you're making you know, $15,000 a year and you're paying nothing in income taxes, now all of a sudden you got to start paying 17% in income taxes. Hey, you know, from the billionaire's point of view, we're getting the poor people to pay taxes too. Ha ha. This is what Mitt Romney was talking you know, about when he said only 46% of Americans pay taxes. Well, here's my thing, though. I guess maybe that's a wrong analogy using the word flat tax, but... Rather than having people take, like, all these deductions and stuff, mm -hmm. example, rich people, okay, Bezos, whatever, whatever you want to use, and say, okay, look, you're going to pay 28% off of, you know, whatever, or you're going to pay 32 or you're going to pay whatever it is, whatever that income level is, mm -hmm. those people pay that rate, period. So as you scale down, people who make less pay less. Rather than trying to do all these various different tax deductions, tax rebates, tax whatever, why not just scale it to something that is more simplistic? Well, I'm all in favor of simplifying the tax code, Laurie. I'm, I'm completely in favor of that. But, but the fact of the matter is Mitt Romney was right. 46% of Americans who are working, who are earning a paycheck, don't pay income taxes. And the reason why is because the Republican Party has fought unionization so hard since the 1980s that you've got almost half of America that is working for so little money that they can barely get by. Uh, so little money that they don't even have to pay income taxes because, you know, hey, you know, it would be punitive, basically, to force these people to pay income taxes. And a flat tax would, would force all those people to pay an income tax. Yeah, but why could you not make it where, at that level, okay, they don't pay a tax? Well, that's like, how, what we have right know, now. I mean, why could you not? Yeah, but what I'm saying is, you know, like, if you own a business, if you whatever, you can take these deductions, blah, blah, blah. Why not just say, okay, here is your net income. This is what you make. This is what yeah. you pay. Period. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I don't think that there are simple answers to this, Laurie. And the flat tax, I think, is absolutely the wrong tax. I get it that, that you know, you're trying to calibrate your language, and thank you for that. Um, but it's, it, 
I don't know where to go beyond that. Lori, thank you for the call. It's a, it's a great it's a great conversation. We'll be right back. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. There is a variation of what Lori's talking about for corporations, where, where the Democrats are proposing any corporation with over a billion dollars in revenue has to pay 15% income tax. It's the Tom Hartman program. Telling you the truth, the multinational corporations and fat cap billionaires on the right would really rather you didn't hear. Catherine in Burlington, Vermont. Hey, Catherine, thanks for watching us on YouTube. What's up? Yes, um, Tom, I have kind of a question inside of a statement. Okay. Um, You were talking earlier about corporate greed, and usually that's what we talk about on the Tom Hartman show, corporate greed. But I wanted to correct that. I'm not saying there aren't greedy individuals in the world. But the corporations are structured, the construct of a corporation has the greed, so-called, the money profit built in, and the corporate heads have a fiduciary duty, a legal duty to that profit motive. So it's not the corporate heads, it's the construct of capitalism which was formed or or pushed for a few hundred years by those wanting to build, to do nation building and... Uh, at the expense, uh, and, and then there was another way we could have gone. There were several ways, but instead of nation building, building for the people, cooperatives, the people, people, Thomas Jefferson, whom you like, saw a country of farmers. That's what he envisioned. And the capitalist had the money backing and the power to quash that, to quash that effort. Well, there was, a, there was an ongoing debate. In fact, about a third of uh, Hamilton, Alexander Hamilton's report on manufacturers is rebutting Jefferson's you know, desire to have America be an agrarian society. Jefferson came around to Hamilton's way of thinking, by the way, when he became president in 1801. But the point that you're making, you know, you've got the Dodge v. Ford Michigan Supreme Court case back in the 1930s, where the Michigan Supreme Court said that a corporate head, in this case Henry Ford, um, has has a, a fiduciary responsibility to increase profits. That was never done at a federal level. That was a, a state Supreme Court decision in, in the state of Michigan. And it really didn't have that much application other than being a principal. But what happened in the 1980s was that prior to the Reagan administration, the, under, the broad understanding in law in the United States, as well as policy, was that corporations have multiple shareholders, stakeholders, their customers, their employees, the community in which they operate, the institution of the corporation itself, and, uh, well, and I guess that would be it, and, and, oh, and their profits, their shareholders their stockholders. 
And what Reagan did was he adopted, and the Supreme Court, by the way, adopted this also in the 1980s. This is in my book on uh, uh, monopolies. The Supreme Court and the Reagan administration adopted this thing that, that had been sold basically by, by, the, by the inventors of neoliberalism. And Robert Bork was one of their main proponents that the only thing that should be considered when you, when you consider a corporation is how profitable it is. And the only thing you should consider when you're deciding whether or not to break up a monopoly is whether, is whether it's going to cause prices to go up or down. In other words, it's all about the bottom line, price or profit. And that has brought us to here. Prior to the 1980s, many corporations were very socially responsible. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with BiteClear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. BiteClear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome back. Tom Harvin here with you. And, uh, boy, what a day, huh? I just want to state again, you know, we had Joe Madison, the talk show host, Joe is my colleague on Sirius XM uh, radio. He's on channel 126, Urban View, every morning from 6 to 10 a.m. He does a, a spectacular job. Joe is not just my peer. He is, you know, a giant in this industry and has been for a long time, a lot longer than I have been, uh, you know, around in this industry. And he's not eating solid food, you know, just basically, I'm assuming just basically juices until this thing changes. And that's, you know, that's a risky thing. He is putting his body at risk. And you can see it looking at him. He is putting his body at risk for voting rights. And if the rest of us can't, at the very least, make a damn phone call, you know, I, I don't know what to say. It's, you know, the, the number for Congress is 202-224-3121. If you want to call your elected member of the House or Senate. Actually, this is all, should all be focused on the Senate because it's all about the filibuster. Both, all three of these pieces of legislation, the John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Bill, the Freedom to Vote Act, this is the, the, the one that Joe Manchin put together, and the most expansive of the three, the For the People Act, uh, have all passed the House of Representatives. And they're all sitting on Chuck Schumer's desk and they can't go any farther because the Republicans have declared a filibuster. And the Democrats have the ability to break that filibuster. They ha just have to convince all 50 of their members. And so far, what we're hearing is that Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema are opposed to even drilling this little hole in the filibuster. And that's just wrong. It's just, I, you know, there's no other way of saying it other than to say it's just wrong. You know, I think that we've figured out now what Joe Manchin might have gotten in exchange for uh, supporting assuming that this happens, certainly supporting the, the BIF, the, bi, the so-called bipartisan infrastructure framework, but also the Build Back Better bill. And uh, that has to do with uh, a young man by the name of Brad Crabtree. 
This came out of apparently a meeting between Joe Manchin and uh, President Joe Biden. Uh, Crabtree is uh, he's from uh, North Dakota. He started the Great Plains Institute back in 2002 on behalf of the big oil companies, Push and the and in his state, coal, big big coal, lignite coal, uh, to push the idea that the government needs to be subsidizing these companies in developing carbon capture and storage technology to, to, to take carbon out of the air. Now, just you know, for the record, uh, with, the ex with the single exception of this plant that's operating in Iceland that's running off volcanic power, nowhere on earth has carbon capture and storage been demonstrated to work because it requires so much energy to pull the carbon out of the, out of the atmosphere and store it that you have to use more energy producing more carbon to get it than you get, if you, if you understand what I'm saying. Uh, but, the, but the utility companies have made, uh, you know, substantial uh, donations to politicians who are promoting this idea that the federal government should be subsidizing. Now, uh, let me just say, if we can effectively decarbonize the atmosphere, I'm all in favor of that. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be funding this kind of research. But I think that we need to go into it eyes wide open, realizing that this is the Hail Mary for the fossil fuel industry. And uh, this over at the dailyposter.com, uh, David Sirota's uh, 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 article or website, this one is actually by Walter Bragman and Julia Rock, who work uh, you know, on the Daily Poster. Uh, they, they note this, and they talk about Brad Crabtree, and then they say the Wall Street-friendly think tank Third Way was elated at the news that Crabtree would be taking a prominent position within the Biden administration. And that's what I think Joe Manchin got out of this. He's now in charge of... He will be the Department of Energy's Assistant Secretary for Fossil Energy and Carbon Management. So, you know, Crabtree has served as an advisor to the National Coal Council since 2014. He's Vice President for Fossil Energy at the Great Plains Institute, an opaque pro-fossil fuel group that has been lobbying in D.C. for funding carbon capture technology. Crabtree is also the director of the D.C.-based Carbon Capture Coalition, whose members include fossil fuel companies like Shell, NRG Energy, and Valero, and incidentally, the Third Way, which is this you know, group that uh, came out of Wall Street that, that sponsors or, or helped create the so-called Corporate Problem Solvers Caucus in, in the House and Senate. Uh, utility companies have made substantial donations to the Third Way. Just between 2015 and 2019, Entergy gave them a, a $125,000. Uh, to the third way, public service enterprise group gave them fifty thousand, PG&E one hundred seventy-five thousand, um, and Congress had set aside in the bipartisan in the BIF, the bipartisan infrastructure bill, eight and a half billion dollars to to fund this, uh, you know, to subsidize and fund uh, this uh, carbon capture and sequestration. So, you know, we'll see where this goes. I, like I said, I, I don't think this is outrageous. I think this is kind of falls into the category of this is the sausage being made. And you get to see, you know, okay, you know, Joe Manchin wanted something, Joe Biden wanted something, Manchin got something relatively small, you know, eight billion bucks for a subsidy for the fossil fuel industry. President Biden gets something really big. Manchin's vote on this thing on the on the so-called BIF. We'll see how it shakes out. But anyhow, that's that's my uh, my take on that. So let's pick up some of your phone calls. Tim in Rockville, Maryland. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind today? Thanks for taking the call. I really appreciate it. Sure. And. Uh, I want to jump back to the uh, Rittenhouse court mm -hmm. and the judge in particular and his behavior 
and your take on what impact it had ultimately on the decision. I think the and judge the threw the case to the defense from the beginning. Well, all, all throughout, it was clear he was uh, um, had something against the prosecutor. Well, that and that so, said, um, this judge has a reputation as a guy who is typically on the side of defendants, which I would say, broadly speaking, is probably a good thing. But in this case, it seemed like, you know, I mean, particularly he's starting out by saying that the, the people that Rittenhouse killed, you know, the, the first guy who arguably attacked him, and, and you know, I, I can understand how the jury might come up with a self-defense, uh, you know, defense in that situation. That guy apparently had some mental problems. But the second guy, you know, with a skateboard was just trying to disarm him. He was just, he was just, you know, everybody thought that you, there was an active shooter situation and Rittenhouse was the shooter and this guy was trying to disarm him and he killed him. And, and, and the judge said, you can't call them victims. You can, and, and the third guy, same deal. He's trying to disarm him and he gets, you know, his bicep blown off. And the judge said, you can't call them victims. You can call them looters or, or rioters. And they weren't. They, you know, they weren't participating in looting or rioting. And, you know, that was a dead giveaway right from the get-go, Tim, that this trial was not going to turn out well. He's elected. Do you think that had any impact on his behavior? And lastly, if I was to go up in Wisconsin and walk in a store with a gun tomorrow with the idea of robbing it, say, and somebody tried to get the gun away from me and I shot them, would I be successful in claiming a defense based on the Rittenhouse decision? It seems like Thanks it. For taking <laughs> I mean, you know, it, it would depend on whether you had a judge that was as biased as Judge, what was it, Schroeder, as I recall, was in this case. But arguably this could set, uh, illegally, it could set a very bad precedent. I think culturally it's setting a terrible precedent, which is, you know, open season for white vigilantes against people who are protesting violence against black people. That's the bottom line. Tim, thanks for the call. Johan in Los Angeles. Hey, Johan, what's on your mind today? Yes, sir. Um, what will it take to repeal the Second Amendment? To repeal the Second Amendment would require an act of Congress uh, with a supermajority in both the House and the Senate, and then the endorsement of, I believe, 34 states, three-quarters of the states. Because essentially, you'd have to go through the same process. You'd have to either You'd have to go through the same process to put into place a constitutional amendment as you would to amend a constitutional amendment. Because you're amending the Constitution. It, that, that amendment is now part of the Constitution. So what you're talking about is amending the Constitution. A much easier way to do it would be to simply pass a law saying that Congress believes that the Second Amendment was speaking of state militias. And therefore, states can decide who can be in their militia and who can have a gun and you know i mean going back to the to the to the pre uh, basically heller uh, certainly and and maybe pre other uh, supreme court decisions um, you know conventional wisdom that that the second amendment was there so that states could have militias you know in in order to in order to protect the state and in, in order to protect the the federal government should that state be a militia be called up as is provided for in Article One, Section Eight of the Constitution. So, did I answer your question? Yeah, but um, do you think ever will be repealed? No, no. But I think that it's possible that a different Supreme Court could interpret it differently. I don't think that's going to happen. You know, probably this decade. <laughs> um, and it could happen that Congress could, you know, really take a bite out of it. And that's what that's what I hope happens. Johan, thanks for the call. 
Mike in Charleston, South Carolina. Hey, Mike, what's up? Hey, um, yeah, I was just getting my tire fixed at the shop, and uh, the guy that works there, um, he's working for somebody, but he's like to open up his own business, okay? And there's the real world, and there's an ideal world. In the real world, it's supply and demand, and what you can afford to pay someone, what you can afford to charge um, your product and sell it for, and the idea that we should all have union jobs and hunky-dory and, and live in a communist type of, you know, from each, according to their abilities, to each, according to their needs, just doesn't work. Well, I'm not what proposing that, Mike. Now there's anybody else that I know of in the Democratic Party. You know, Karl Marx is from each according to their needs, all that kind of stuff. It doesn't work. You know, it turned, it turned the Soviet Union into a nightmare. Um, with whether people should be allowed in the United States to organize together into a union as workers when all the power, all the economic power is held by their employers, though, I'm astonished that you would be opposed to that. You know, it's not about being opposed to that. It's about the, the tactics yes, it is. of the unions. No, it's absolutely. You, you, the union you know, came in. Look, can I please finish, okay? No, yeah, no, I'm not, Mike. I, you know, if you're, you're going to try and talk over me, I'll talk over you if I want. Um, you are saying okay, that people should not have the right to unionize. I'm saying that government should protect the right to unionize. I don't understand why you think working people should not have the right to, to, to if you can aggregate capital into a corporation, which is all a corporation is, it's aggregated capital, then why can't you aggregate labor? Because not everyone can afford to start a business and pay union wages. Then don't start that business. That's my point. I'm not against unionization. I'm not against people having the right to form a union. That's Sounds like you are. That's what America's about, freedom of choice, okay? But unions' tactics, they pressure people. It happened in Bowie. People that were not going into unions were being harassed by union members. And that's what they do. That's not right either. This, these, are, these are working people trying to provide for their families in the face of enormous opposition from wealthy employers, Mike. Yeah, there's small businesses that are not unionized all across the United States. Employees and employers know each other. They can work things out. That's, that's the norm in the United States. But with these large companies, you know, how are you going to take, how are you going to talk to Jeff Bezos at Amazon if you work in an Amazon warehouse? The guy has got so much money, his pocket change he's using to shoot himself in outer space, and he's saying his workers should not have the right to unionize? How could you possibly justify yeah, I mean, that, Mike? Yeah. yeah, they should be profit sharing in those companies. All companies should be profit sharing. My aunt has a glass business. She profit shares. At the end of the year, they get their profit sharing bonus checks. And it's a completely work, different thing. Profit Pro what you're saying is that that profit sharing should be decided by the employer, not the employees. And what I'm saying is the employees should uh, have no, some say in it. It's a mutual, mutual decision. If it's a mutual decision, you've got to have mutual power. If you're going to have equal power, that means that labor, the workers have to be able to withhold their labor. That is the only power they have, which means having a union. Mike, i got to run. Uh, thanks for the call. <laughs> An interesting one. Thanks so much for being with us today. Don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. It does require all of us to participate. That includes you. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. Make sure you're registered to vote, too, and everybody you know is. Have a great afternoon. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 